And one of the things we found was that there was kind of very little difference to them in the activity of listening to a podcast and making a podcast because it all happened on this platform of social media or on their phones. So they're using their phones to listen. They're also using their phones to record interviews and edit interviews and upload. And it was really this kind of integrated system. While audio storytelling has been around for a long time, podcasting is something new and quite revolutionary. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Dr. Martin Spinelli is a senior lecturer in media and cultural studies within the Media, Film, and Music School at the University of Sussex in Great Britain. He's also the co-author with Dr. Lance Dan of Podcasting, the Audio Media Revolution. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Hi, thanks for having me, Michael. So first of all, what makes podcasting so revolutionary? Well, I think there are two key things that make podcasting a real revolutionary change. The first on the side of the listener is the kinds of engagement are usually more pronounced and the attachment is greater. And the second thing is on the side of the producer, as I'm sure you're familiar with, there's a lot more freedom than there is with radio production. There are no commissioning editors, there's very little overhead, budgets are much leaner, and there's an opportunity to experiment and explore in ways that don't happen in other kinds of audio media. Yeah. And one of the nice things about that second thing that you, you brought up is you don't really need a giant broadcasting structure behind it to uh, post an interview or, you know, do a podcast about something you care about. You don't have to go out and try to sell it to somebody. You can record it yourself, post it online. So theoretically, more more diverse people are getting access to this medium than, say, maybe they would be able to in a traditional broadcasting landscape. You've got to be a bit tech savvy and, you know, you've got to read through uh, reams and reams of blogs and how to on how to manage your RSS feed and whatnot. But you could always outsource that if you really wanted to. And uh, it, it has dramatically lowered the barrier, as you say, for participation in media making, which is no small thing. So how has podcasting sort of emerged as distinct audio from radio? I mean, a lot of a lot of people point to things like Serial, This American Life, which originated on Radio Radiolab even. But podcasting is kind of distinct. And I think people don't always realize that. Can you sort of talk about how that, that that's changed or grown or? Sure. So we think of radio often, and we talk about radio when we're at conferences, when we're teaching radio, we think about radio as a kind of flow medium. There is programming in radio and people jump in when they turn the radio on and they leave when they get out of their car. They often don't listen to the whole thing. They miss parts they don't pick up at the beginning, and the attention is a bit more distracted. On podcasting, it's we think of it much more as a beginning-to-end medium, right? Almost no one would download a podcast and start in the middle. Have you ever have you ever done anything like that? Oh my God. No. I certainly haven't. Um, so that makes it necessarily more narrative in a lot of ways. It's also opt-in. The way we find and discover podcasts is usually through word of mouth, someone we know on social media or in real life, making a recommendation, or we are listening to one podcast and in that podcast, another one is recommended and we explore different things following our own interests. So the, the engagement is typically much more profound and much deeper on podcasting than it is in radio. And the last thing I think that is, is, is a really, really key thing, and I did not understand this 
until I really got stuck into doing this research, is that podcasting is really native to social media. It's really built into our social media networks. One of the, the chapters in the book deals with this young person's podcasting journalism initiative in London called Podium.me. And we surveyed uh, a bunch of young journalists, teenagers and in their early 20s who were working on Podium. And one of the things we found was that there, there was kind of very little difference to them in the activity of listening to a podcast and making a podcast because it all happened on this platform of social media or on their phones. So they're using their phones to listen. They're also using their phones to record interviews and edit interviews and upload. And it was really this kind of integrated system. Didn't really appreciate that until I began the research. Yes, that's something that is certainly not clear. The other thing is, you know, the, one of the things that I like about podcasting is you know, it's very much in the sort of the Netflix model. It's you're doing your own programming, you know, comparing it to radio or television or something like that, or even a, like a newspaper where somebody is choosing the content for you. We have this this wonderful array of, you know, content that's being produced by people who, you know, care about whatever the particular subject is. And through, you know, through things like social media, they're able to make these these connections with an audience that, you know, is, is sort of hungry for content that speaks to them. I, I think for me, that, that's been the experience that I've had with podcasting and talking to podcasters. That's the thing that they like about it. Now, what got you interested into podcast? You're, you're a professor in media studies, so I imagine this being one of the new areas of study, this is something that, that attracted your attention. Yeah, well, I came from a radio background, working at NPR stations, producing material for BBC here in England. And um, I kind of knew podcasting was there in the background. And every once in a while, you know, one of my students would say something about a podcast. But it wasn't really until the fall of 2014 when I first kind of thought, wow, this is a real phenomenon that we need to pay attention to. So I was at the uh, Reuters news agency international headquarters in London on Canary Wharf, where one of my students had been shortlisted for an award, uh, a Young Journalist Award, and the ceremony was happening at Reuters. So before, um, before the event, there were lots of tables in the lobby with lots of young students, student journalists, student audio producers, and I was mingling and I was going through them and I was making idle conversation. I was asking a lot of them what they were listening to. And at almost every table I stopped at, they were enthusing about cereal, which had just launched. It had it had been rolling for a few weeks. And they were, oh, I just love Sarah Koenig. I love the way she is. I love her approach. I love how she kind of speaks to me directly and has these relationships with people that I think are real. And I, I want to do what she does. And it's so exciting. And I just can't wait to hear whether or not he's really guilty. So I don't know. I don't know what your kind of experience was of that first season of Serial, but these kids were like super enthusiastic. So I went home, I downloaded all the available episodes and I binge listened and they were right. I mean, there was something new that was happening here. This was a new kind of journalism in my mind. And there was a new kind of uh, engagement that I was being invited into. So that was that was how I got excited and interested in podcasting and thought somebody should take it seriously as a new form of media. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people's entree into podcasting with Serial, just so you know, and, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I have sort of a love-hate relationship with Serial because I'm a working journalist. There are things journalistically I question the, the way they did them that maybe a traditional journalist wouldn't have done it. Like, you know, maybe they would have had an ending sort of figured out when they began the podcast. That's just a very minor thing. I totally get that. And I remember when Serial when Serial first came out, those the months kind of November 2014, December 2014, there were lots and lots of articles all over the place, both in academic journals and in more popular media by deans of prestigious journalism schools who had real concerns about what was going on with Serial. As you say, they were kind of, they were researching things while they were putting the information out to the public, which opened themselves up to all kinds of libel claims or other legal issues. There's the question about whether or not the courtroom audio should have been included, whether or not that was legal. The kind of bigger thing that made a lot of people anxious was the, the loosening of the grip on things like objectivity and impartiality and detachment, yeah. which are the kind of bedrock of classical journalism, right? And people got nervous about that. But I think something really interesting kind of happened instead. I think that Serial kind of, uh, that first season, Serial season one, invented a new thing that I think of as podcast journalism, where the rules are different, where the ethics are different. There is an ethic there. There's an ethic of transparency and an ethic of real, authentic human attachment being allowed to develop as we're all human beings. And she's honest about that. And she's kind of working through her own reservations about distancing herself from those ethics, because she's a professional journalist too, just like you. All of the things that you, you mentioned are things that, that had sort of gone through my mind and that I still kind of feel in many different ways about about Serial. You know, I was very interested in it as it was coming as it as I began listening to it. But the more and more I listened to it, the more concerned I, I was with some of these, you know, ethical questions. And and you see this also in, you know, the other podcast that was done, S-Town, this the sort of adoption of a, a form that has sort of traditional expectations and then exploding the form. But because I'm going back to serial, I don't want to go into S town, but, but the, you're exploding this, this form, but you know, I still feel that there's value in these, these ethical standards. And, and, and those tend to be things that we're, you know, we're wrapped up that we have a beginning, a middle and end, we kind of know where the where you know somebody was sentenced. The the crime maybe is is unsolved, and, and the, the 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 mission of the of the show is to sort of present the facts, uh, the different sides of, of things. I, I felt that you know I, I guess in the end my my major reservation about about serials I, I felt that it wasn't as balanced as it could be, as an exercise in narrative audio of you know a, a, a a journalist, uh, a host, sort of exploring her own feelings about doing doing certain things. I mean, that's fine, and I and I appreciate that. But it, for me, it, it it felt very much like they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. We want to be a journalistic, you know, investigative thing, but they didn't want to, um, you know, hold themselves to certain. Uh, ethical standards. I mean, they, they address them. You know, I, I felt there wasn't a lot of. I, I felt that there was a lack of balance, and yeah. I, I understand that the other, the other family didn't want to talk about it. And I felt that the sort of the push forward of Adnan's story is he innocent? 
you know, sort of in balance to that, you know, what were the feelings of the of the other family? The, the family had lost their daughter. I, I didn't necessarily feel that her story was well represented. So in a in a journalist, you know, looking at it strictly as a a, a piece of journalism, you, one would hope that they would tell that story as well, the victim's story. And and I don't think that that was adequately addressed. Yeah, that was I, my, my big thing. I totally get that. I think though. Um, the title of the chapter in in our book that deals with cereal, um, uh, the chapter that I wrote uh, about cereal, is called C uh, "The Truth About Cereal: It's Not Really About a Murder." So what I'm arguing is that the story in season one really is only tangentially about events that happened in a high school in Baltimore in 1999. That's really just a point of departure for this bigger story, which is Sarah Koenig wrestling with her relationship with this new form of podcast journalism and trying to figure out what it can be, what it should be, and how much baggage she's going to take from her old career as a, as a radio journalist. So I think the real story is about this new thing of podcasting rather than it is about a murder. Maybe that's, you know, that maybe that's just too academic a thing to say, but I really think it's not, it's not about Adnan or Heyman Lee. It's about Sarah. Yeah, but what's the thing that people talk about? The people who've started other podcasts about looking into cases and things like that. They're not talking about, wow, you know, Sarah Koenig's journey was so so powerful, it meant so much. No, what they're talking about is the Adnan case. So I think from an intellectual standpoint, yes, you can, you can talk about how the story, the storytelling process is, is kind of the, the rationale, the meaning behind it. But I think for a lot of people, especially people who, who were, became huge fans and pushed the podcast forward, it was more about, you know, the innocence of Adnan. Usually I come down on the side of the podcaster in discussions like okay. this, but, but this one in particular, I felt that once it became, you know, sometimes we, we put things out there and you, you see this in fiction all the time that when that an author will write something, meaning, you know, he or she may have meant one thing, but everybody else is giving it a different interpretation. You know, we, we want the podcast audience to embrace the content that we do. And, and this is kind of where these ethical standards come in is, is you want to make sure that you touch the bases, not just necessarily to protect yourself, you know, legally that you're not, you're not going to get sued because you mischaracterize somebody or something, but because you're actually, you're, you're, you're dealing with this, a very serious subject. Do you think those problems persisted in seasons two and three, or do you think things evolved with, with Serial? I haven't heard season three yet. I heard season two. I actually, I preferred season two because I felt that it was a, it was a much more grounded story. Mm -hmm. uh, it was probably more traditional. You know, I, I don't want to get into this argument to be the old fuddy-duddy who, who, who's arguing we have to do everything a particular way. Let me back this out. Let me pull in some other podcasts that, that I think do this sort of thing better. In the Dark, the two seasons of In the Dark, I don't know if you've heard that take a very journalistic, very true crime approach to telling a story, very traditional way of telling a story, apply journalistic standards, and then actually accomplish some kind of great things. They yeah. tell a bigger story, they address the story of the case, but also employ journalistic standards to do that. The so, other one I can think of is 74 Seconds. Have you listened to that one? I've heard of that, but I have not listened to that, no. Yeah. And I think Serial Season 2 and 3 of Serial 
they pull back from that yeah. messiness of season one, which was one of the things that made it so interesting and exciting. And they are much more familiar. They're, you know, they follow a more familiar kind of ethics. They don't they don't source material as they're releasing it, and they are they're much more. I, I don't want to use this word because it's loaded, but you, you'll know what I mean. It's much more conservative. They're much more conservative than they yeah. were season one. Yeah, and I don't want to discount your your argument. I think I think yeah, one of the great things about podcasting in general is the the freedom to sort of explore these different areas and i think you know where i'm going to ask you in a little bit about you know one of the quotes that you had in the, in the book is the you know we're as we're reaching the uh, twilight of the golden age of podcasting i think we're actually at the beginning of the golden age of podcasting i think what we've seen really has been just the sort of baby steps i think okay. there's a huge for me huge possibilities that we haven't explored but anyway, yeah, let me ask you about that quote. You you refer to the period of time that you cover in the book, which is from 2014 to the present, as the twilight of podcasting's golden era. Why do you say that? Well, because I think that in from 2014, when you had all these things coming together, you had the launch of Serial, and you had Ira Glass promoting it on the Jimmy Fallon show, and millions of viewers, it going out on, the first episode going out on This American Life. There was this huge kind of media buzz around it. You also had, at that moment... Apple baking in for the first time the podcast app into its phone iOS. So you had this kind of convergence of lots of things that were focusing everyone's cultural energy onto podcasting. And then very shortly afterwards, a lot of money started getting thrown at it. You know, Audible started its own bespoke podcast content wing behind a firewall. They pinched Ellen Horn from Radiolab. Other outfits like Panoply did the same thing. They started kind of producing stuff, throwing a lot of money at it, trying to figure out how to monetize it. There was a lot of experimentation. And I think Recently, this past summer, I don't know if you saw the news, but Audible, they shut down or drastically reduced their original uh, podcast content production. Panoply did the same thing. I, you know, I wonder how much Squarespace money and Blue Apron money there is to sustain all these podcasts. And I think, well, Gimlet Creative, their podcast production, uh, it's, it's sort of PR, corporate PR wing of what they do. They're making a lot of money by making a podcast for Microsoft, for example, which is a good podcast, but it's, it is a Microsoft vehicle. I also see big institutions like NPR, like the BBC, like WNYC, they're putting all their eggs in the podcast basket at the moment. And it is going to become, I think, I think it's going to happen that we're going to see more of the same commissioning hoops that you need to jump through in order to get your podcast funded. I also think that celebrities are flooding the market and kind of sucking up all the oxygen of publicity and drawing attention away from a lot of much more creative, interesting, innovative narrative podcasts. And I think, you know, these are all relatively recent phenomenon that only happened because we had this great moment of dynamism. It's sort of like the dot-com bubble maybe in the late 90s. We had a podcast mm -hmm. bubble and I kind of, I hear it popping now, but maybe convince me that I'm wrong, please. The things you say are, are all true, but you know, here's the thing: we're ta you're talking about one aspect of the podcasting economy, and I think we're kind of in this push me pull you moment where you know how do we make podcasting sustainable? I mean, that's the question that people have been asking for years, and 
it doesn't fit comfortably into an advertising model, a traditional corporate, you know, this is how we're going to make money. Podcasting doesn't, I mean, some people are making money apparently on podcasting, but not a lot of people are, you know, another thing that I, that I kind of, you know, bristle at when people talk about cereal, especially as an entree point or as, as a major milestone cereal, yes, is a major milestone because it brought a lot of eyes to the podcasting space, but podcasting had been around for years and there were many, many, many different types of podcasts that were very experimental that, that had audiences that had sort of created this distribution economy that was behind it. So, you know, if we talk of, of podcasting strictly in terms of NPR and things like Panoply, et cetera, I think you're, there's a, a vast area of podcasting we're not even really involved in or we're not even discussing that I think it's not like podcasting is going to go away because NPR, NPR decides that they, they want to stop funding it or, or Panoply goes under. You know, podcasting is a storytelling medium will continue and there will be ways for people to find ways to monetize it. Part of my background is that, you know, I worked for a, a broadcasting company that was asking a lot of these these same questions about podcasting. How deeply should we get into podcasting? But, you know, many of those executives are like, you know, no, there's not you know, any way to make money in this. And unless you can find a way to make money in a, in a broadcasting sense, it's not going to be successful. And what you're saying is that's a good thing. It saves for us that creative space. I think so. Most of the podcasts being produced are the vast majority, 99% probably right. are produced out of the goodness and generosity of people's hearts and desires to communicate with other people, with other human beings. They're not about making money. This podcast, as an example, go on. <laughs> if a student came up to me and said, you know, I want to make money podcasting, I would, you know, tell them to go study law or something. I don't know. You're right to kind of draw our attention back to this, the grassroots DIY spirit that podcasting was born out of. Most podcasts are produced that way. As an academic who's used to doing close textual analysis of things, there are only so many chat casts I can listen right. to. And so like for me, kind of sinking my teeth into these things that have been produced with a lot of care and a lot of thought is is more rewarding experience because I can talk more critically and, and more expansively about these things. Because of what this podcast is and, and is looking how digital media has changed over the last seven years, I'm coming from a perspective that a lot of the old, you know, in journalism, a lot of the old structures crumbled and, and are not sustaining this, this type of um, medium, digital media. And so, you know, I see that very much in podcasting, that when a corporation, you know, a broadcasting company looks at podcasting and, and tries to fit it into their model of, you know, we got to do ads, we, you know, you know, how do I know who's listening to my podcast? Is the download a, a reasonable measure of what an audience size is? I mean, no. yeah, which is a ridiculous question when you think about how, you know, they currently measure their audiences, which is yeah. all smoke and mirrors. It is. Uh, but what they've done is they've got decades of convincing advertisers that this is what the size of our audiences are. And yeah. podcasting is too new. There's there's no empirical evidence or, or very little evidence for them to support a lot of the uh, advertising that's out there. There are people who do advertise. You know, you mentioned mentioned a few who are comfortable in the podcasting space. Yeah. I guess it's the question is what makes what makes podcasting successful and sustainable? Is it is it just that it ends up becoming like another branch of like mass media is, is it, you know, TV, radio and podcasting? Yeah. Those two things can be separated out. You know, what makes a, a podcast successful is not the same as what makes it 
economically viable. I think for a, podcasts are successful because you develop trust with your audience, because you develop a kind of engagement and relationship with your audience that is really special compared to other kinds of media. And the second you try to monetize that, the second you have Jada Boomerad doing an ad on Radiolab, you're spending some of that trust, right? You're throwing everybody into this kind of complicated headspace where I trust this guy, I want this guy to kind of help me think about things and maybe even be my friend or at least have a kind of honest conversation with me. He's authentic. I like him because he's authentic. And then when you throw advertising into the mix, all of a sudden that authenticity becomes undermined. It becomes, you have a problem with it, right? So that dynamic, that conundrum might mean that podcasting is never going to be monetizable in the way that radio is monetizable or TV is monetizable. Those are questions that yeah. we're going to have a long time, I think. And I agree with you. Yeah, but, you know, look at people like Adam Carolla and um, Joe Rogan, who, who who build up podcasting empires that aren't just about the podcast. I mean, the podcast mm -hmm. is an important part of their formula, but, you know, they're making money off of live appearances, books, you know, Adam Carolla, yeah. like, finances movies, and you have GoFundMe types of things. Again, a non-traditional way of financing podcasting Comedians in Britain are doing exactly that. Right. So Adam Buxton's podcast or Richard Herring's podcast or Scroobius Pip's podcast, they are, they're part of their media portfolio. They're part of their professional portfolio. Their brand. They, yeah. yeah, their brand. They, they do the podcast to develop a following, and then that following comes to their gigs and pays 25 pounds a ticket. So it's all really, really integrated in a way that older media wasn't. And because it's integrated into those different professional models, you can give it away for free. And I think you should give it away for free in most cases. Yeah. And, and I think that that's where, you know, not, you know, you also see it in, in other areas like, you know, marketing and business podcast podcasts that are explainers for particular, you know, you know, pot, you know it, we got to look at podcasting as different things is, you know, if we, if we look at it, view it as sort of journalism and as entertainment, or do we look at it as, as just a medium for conveying information, some of which is entertaining, but others of it is educational, you know, podcasting is so many, can be so many different things. But anyway, anyway. <laughs> you, you and I are not going to, not, not going to, uh, to, to, to solve this conundrum because it is no. a conundrum because there are, there are, there are people in corporate offices who are trying to figure this out who, who make much more than you or I do. <laughs> and certainly, um, yeah. that, that are trying to crack this question. And, uh, I don't know what it's going to be. I mean, I think the economy for podcasting is very different than it was, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. True. Um, so, so we'll have to see. So, <laughs> what is the question I want to ask you so we can sort of wrap this up? Um, now, now fitting, you know, fittingly for for the release of your book, because we haven't really talked about the book, you you launched a podcast series called For Your Ears Only. What what can listeners expect from that? So, For Your Ears Only is um, uh, a really great podcast that has come out of the research that we did for the book. So it's it's the same material um, that we cover in the book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, but it's packaged differently. So rather than focusing on particular podcasts, building chapters around specific podcasts um, like we did in the book, um, uh, the podcast series for your ears only is much more thematic. It looks at a big idea, a big podcast concept 
every week for eight weeks. So we have a, a program about intimacy. We have a program about um, editing. We have a program about narrative. We have a program about audio drama. We have a program about audience. And so the material is framed in a, in a different way. And it's also much more creative. We um, spend a lot of time uh, trying to kind of engage with uh, the ideas that we come up with in the research uh, in fun and interesting ways. So for example, in the episode about intimacy, um, we got a couple of actors and we got a binaural microphone um, and um, we had them read different passages from D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love and St. Augustine's Confessions, both of which are about really intimate kinds of love. And they're moving around this binaural microphone and they're creating this really exquisitely intimate moment. For your listeners who don't know what a binaural mic is, a binaural mic is sort of imagine a head, like a mannequin head, but with two microphones in each of the ears. So it's designed to kind of recreate the real human listening experience as exactly as a microphone can. And you can get really close to one ear and whisper in and it's 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 really lovely. So another creative thing that we do um, uh, in the editing episode, we have an episode, an episode on editing, um, is uh, um, I and uh, one of my other 50-something-year-old colleagues are teaching one of our 23-year-old producers how to edit with tape. And it's hysterical to kind of watch her, listen to her, try and figure out how to scrub from reel to reel and how to use the China pencil to mark it. And then we, we edit all that up together in a very ambitious way on our digital editing software. Uh, and then the, the one about narrative, the episode about narrative, uh, we do a, a parody of the three little pigs told in the form of this American life. So it's got you know this rising tension and the moment of reflection and all of that. So it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. I, the, the fact that you're you're making a, a twenty something uh, a cut tape is is cruel and unusual punishment, sir. Um, <laughs> she the, would certainly agree. <laughs> yeah. So you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I get you, get your opinion about. I was at Podcast Movement last summer, and there was somebody there from um, or Edison Media, and, and, and yeah, and, was, part, pardon. Was it Larry Rosen? Um, yeah, I think it might have been. He's the head of Edison. We interviewed him for the book. So he's, yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Yeah. But you one, may, you may, you're about to tell me you, you disagreed with him totally. I don't know. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't want to be a contrarian here. This is, it's this conflict. This is drama. This is podcasting. This is what it's, I know. I agree with a, a lot of what you've said. No, one of the things that he brought up was, you know, he, he talked about audio, you know, audience size and, you know, how audiences for podcasting is continuously grown over the years at a pretty steady rate but he talked about you know we're still you know podcasting is still a fraction of the of the audience certainly a fraction of the audience of, of tv and radio and one of the points he brought out was you know podcasting got to this level by producing niche content lots of different shows about very niche topics and one of the things he threw out there is the challenge is you know where is the next you know where's the podcast version of America's Got Talent, you know, that, that, that's got the big mass appeal. When, you know, can we and when will we create podcasts that appeal, have wide appeal audiences? That was sort of his challenge was, was to to take us up to the next level is to, to think about, you know, the types of programming that do, there, there may be more traditional to the content of, of TV or radio. What do you think about that? I think hoping to find podcast equivalent of X Factor 
is a bit misguided. I don't think it, I don't think it really understands what podcasting is. I think it is a niche medium and that's part of its appeal because there's lots and lots of evidence now to show that the engagement that listeners have with podcasts is qualitatively a different order of thing than they have with TV programs or with call-in radio programs. So there's, um, uh, to try and kind of have a mass appeal um, in a medium that was born as a niche communication device that was born on small scale, intimate one-on-one relationships. I don't think you're ever going to have that. I may be wrong, but I'll take even money on that. (laughs) Well, it's kind of like, it's the difference between like a one-on-one phone conversation and and conference calling. It's like, it's what that experience is. It's like, yeah, it's, it's good, but it's nobody really enjoys enjoys a conference call. (laughs) You think about how most people listen to podcasts. They listen on earbuds, right? Which are actually inside your body. The podcasts move around with your body because they're on your phone. They're on you. The earbuds are in your ears. They're inside your body. There's a different kind of relationship and it is a much more intimate relationship. And I don't think those kind of big spectacular shows like America's Got Talent talent um, are are suited for the podcast medium. Now, you can go back in history and say, well, yes, there were radio variety shows that were versions of American Idol. All true. But people were listening to radio in a different way back then. They were listening, gathered around a speaker like they were in an auditorium. Right. It was it was a different experience. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Martin, I feel that you and I could talk about podcasting for a very long time and and actually come to some agreement on some things. I actually agree with a lot of what what you said. The only thing I, I disagree is I, th- I think that there's still a lot more that can go on, but maybe it is the twilight. We will see. Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Actually, before I, I wrap you up, tell people about the book, when it's coming out, when, when they can, where they can find it. For Your Ears Only is yeah. the podcast series, which deals with a lot of these same issues in a funner, looser way. And if people are really interested, they can follow us on social media at Ears Only Podcast. Excellent. Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Michael. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.